indeed. Yes, the green light's on. I need to move over. And I'm going to move this over for Carla. So I am really happy today because my friend Carla is preaching, and Carla's a great preacher, no pressure. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Carla. Carla's originally from Pictou County in Nova Scotia, and she went to King's at Dalhousie University. And from there, she pursued doctoral studies at the University of Aberdeen and lectured at Presbyterian College at McGill in Montreal and came from there to Guelph to serve as minister of Westminster St. Paul's Church for 15 years. Carla is an avid gardener. She is one of the most adventurous worldwide travelers I know, and she's been my friend for 25 years. So we are delighted to have you here, and you've been a friend to Courtright as well. Not only have you preached here, but you have served our youth, doing profession of faith, and in other ways also. Um, and uh, Carla is just a brilliant theologian, uh, a wise person, and we wait uh, for your words today. Let me pray for you. Do you want to come up here and I will pray for you, Carla? I guess I have to stand a little bit farther back than I usually do. Yeah. Um, dear God, we thank you for the ministry of your word, that your word never goes out without returning fruitfully. Um, and you promise to multiply your truth, to multiply your grace, to multiply all of our response to you. And so today we, we come before you waiting for the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we pray that, that uh, the message that Carla has for us, um, the words that she will read from Scripture, um, would light up the night sky of our lives. I pray that, that you would be a beacon to us, those of us who are struggling, um, to those of us who are content, that you would stir us up, provoke us um, to see Jesus, as we sang earlier. So, and I pray for Carla too. I pray for her as she brings uh, this message. I pray for her in her life generally. I pray your blessing on her. Pray for guidance. Pray for... Um, her as she seeks to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Courtright, let me just look around at you. It's great to be in a gathered church, uh, to come in and be welcomed by friendly faces. A lot of you I recognize. And uh, I know that in our months of isolation, you have been bearing fruit. I've been in touch with some of you and heard the cool things you're doing through neighborhood groups and whatever. Uh, you're also bearing veg. You're uh, planting a garden, and that's an exciting project. So, but it is, uh, I think, the way God intends to have us to gather together. And when you haven't seen friends in a while, I wonder if it, that'll be sort of like heaven, when uh, you're like, oh, I remember you. So <laughs> that was a bit what it was like coming together. Uh, great to be here. Um, hear the word of God as it's 
written in Luke chapter 15, reading verses 1 and then 11 to 32. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he, he went off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, come, bring a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Come, Holy Spirit. As we open your word and be among us, confirm in our hearts all that is good and true, and grant that I may speak faithfully in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I bet if I mention the psychology of birth order to you, you will have heard of this theory before, yes? Psychologist Alfred Adler pioneered it in the early decades of the 20th century. The theory is that if you're an eldest child, 
you are likely to be more conscientious and responsible, more perfectionistic and motivated to achieve. And if you are a youngest child, you're more likely to be indulged, to get by by the charm of your personality and to be the life of the party. And if you're a middle child, well, then, <laughs> then your role is often that of a peacemaker and you've had to do what it takes to get noticed, whether that means acting out rebelliously or developing some area of achievement in distinction from your elder sibling. Adler's idea was that these dynamics are established in the childhood home but continue to affect personality throughout life. The problem is that the theory uh, has had few, if any, large-scale studies that verify it, as the literature from the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, will readily admit. But still, it holds a firm place in popular psychology because many people think that it has explanatory power. It just seems in their own experience of life to be true. So I want to conduct my own little experiment among us today to see if it seems true to you. Hands up, those of you who are eldest children and consider yourselves more conscientious, responsible, socially dominant, that's bossy, um, <laughs> and motivated by achievement, than your younger siblings. Okay, hands up if you're an eldest child and that is not true of you. <laughs> okay, uh, hands up those of you who are youngest children and consider yourselves to have gotten by in life more on your charm than your conscientiousness. You're usually friendly and highly relational, often quite creative, the life of the party, and you can sometimes feel inferior if you're around everyone who's older and more accomplished. Okay, youngest children of, of whom that's true, and youngest children of whom that's not true. Okay, that one's more evenly divided. And now middle children. You thought I forgot about you, didn't you? Because that <laughs> is your tragedy in life. <laughs> How many of you identify with the description of the typical middle child? Peacemaker, um, negotiator, someone who has either to act out or develop in very different expertise than uh, an attention, in order to get some attention in the family. <laughs> okay, those middle children of whom that is not true. Okay, <laughs> and last, um, Final question, how many of you who identified with the birth order characteristics for yourselves also see some validity in it for your children, if you have children? Okay, those are the true believers. <laughs> and that's about 80% of the, the congregation here. The, the youngest children weren't sure they were uh, characterized by the, the characteristics, but the other two... Uh, definitely more believers in birth order theory than otherwise. Not scientifically, but just anecdotally, I would say that I have found eldest children, in my experience, very often exemplify eldest child characteristics. But what I've also noticed is that very often they're not very happy about it. As conscientious people, they shoulder the greatest share of the responsibility in their family, but often they wish their younger siblings would step up so that they could get out from under the burden. 
and occasionally they can be quite resentful about it. I'm sure if I asked you to guess which of the sisters of Lazarus, Mary or Martha, is the eldest, you'd fasten on Martha. Because even though we're never told in the Bible which is the eldest, she just seems like an elder sister type, characterized by responsibility and politeness. But all the while seething because her sister is off doing what she enjoys, which is spending time with Jesus. Well, we have another such sibling rivalry dynamic in the parable that we're looking at today, the well-known one of the prodigal son. And here again, the brothers exemplify birth order theory to a T. The eldest one is diligent and responsible, and the younger one indulged by the parent and wanting nothing more from life than to party. It would be interesting to go through the whole Bible looking at all the stories of siblings, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and to see if birth order characteristics could be discerned in how these siblings behave. But I think that somebody's probably already written a book about that. The book I don't think has been written is one that applies birth order characteristics to different Christian denominations. The Orthodox and Catholic churches were the eldest that came along first, and the churches of the 16th century Reformation, uh, and then finally the contemporary charismatic or evangelical type of church. Would it be true, I wonder, that the spirituality of Catholic and Orthodox churches concentrates more on the duties of the faith, whereas the young charismatics and evangelicals are in search of relational encounters and experience? And what would we make of ourselves as Presbyterians, middle children? <laughs> I don't know about you folk here at Courtright, because many of you do identify more as broadly-based evangelical than as brand-specific Presbyterians. But when I've studied or preached the prodigal son story in Presbyterian context, the kind of comments that I've heard lead me to believe the focal point of the story for us should not be the younger brother, or even the father, but the elder brother. When I was at Regent College, I participated in a community group where each person shared their personal testimony of coming to faith. I remember leaving my testimony to the end because it was so boring. Among the others who spoke, there was a familiar pattern. There was before Christ and after Christ. There was early Christian influence followed by a sojourn in the far country, usually some dramatic descent into God-forgetfulness, aided by sex, drugs, or rock and roll. And then a dramatic story of reawakening, a rebirth, a coming home. These are the folk who, when they read the parable of the prodigal son, are like, I was that guy. And for them, it's a parable of grace. They share the experience with the prodigal son of finding a forgiveness with God, in God that is more ready to welcome us back than we are to turn our steps homeward. They will notice things like the fact that the son has his speech all prepared, verses 18 and 19. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. But before he gets to the end of his prepared speech, the father interrupts him 
He never gets a chance to offer himself as a slave who will work off his debt because his father's reinstatement of him as a son, this son of mine, is immediate and total. In fact, far from accepting him back as a slave, the father dresses him and feasts him and honors him like royalty. For those who have returned to the Lord after a season of estrangement, it's the wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea, which is the main point of this parable. And that's why it resonates with their personal experience and why it is such a moving parable and why in evangelical churches it is a key parable. But the story I had to tell my community group at Regent was not a story of having dramatically lost myself and then, to use the language of verse 17, coming back to myself again and returning to the Father. It was of having received the faith as an inheritance in my childhood home and of making it my own at some point, but nothing dramatic, no before Christ and after Christ, no Damascus Road blinding lights, no renouncing of my lurid ways, for I was 13 and I didn't have too many lurid ways. <laughs> that was my story. And that is the story of the majority, I think, of mainline Presbyterians that I've come across. With apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, let me put it this way. If you've never felt it a delight to squander everything you own, you might be a Presbyterian. <laughs> if you've never given yourself over to dissolute living, you might be an elder brother. If you've never been hungry, never coveted pig slop, you might be a Presbyterian. If you've never wandered very far from the Father's house, never had a period of your life when you ceased to go to church, you might be an elder brother. And if you are a Presbyterian elder brother type, then your response to this parable might not be what it was for the evangelical younger brother type. Instead of being moved by the wideness of God's mercy and gladdened by his preemptive extension of immediate, total forgiveness and welcome to the one who was lost, you might have more questioning thoughts. Isn't this father a wee bit overindulgent? Probably that's what turned the son rotten in the first place. Has the prodigal really learned his lesson? What if he just takes the robe and the ring to the nearest pawn shop so that he can continue his dissolute ways? Was he really penitent or just ready to return because the money had run out and a famine had come and he was miserable? These are actual comments that were made to me once when leading a Bible study on this parable with a group of Presbyterians. This parable in its original context may actually have been more directed toward the elder brother types than to the prodigals. The setting is described for us in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus wanted the notorious sinners with whom he was eating, to know that they were welcomed by him and by God. But they already knew that, didn't they? Because there he was eating with them. It is the Pharisees and the scribes who are confronting 
challenging Jesus here, and, and the parables that Jesus tells are in direct response to them. In the Matthew chapter 18 account, there is only one parable, the parable of the lost sheep. But Luke expands this section and tells three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then this expanded parable of the prodigal son, all of which have the same point, that heaven rejoices when what was lost is found. For those who like to divide the parables of Jesus into three groups, the parables of the kingdom, the parables of grace, and the parables of judgment. This parable, like the majority of those given in Luke, is usually classified as a parable of grace. But I don't find it so easy to make those distinctions. If parables of the kingdom describe what is happening as the ministry of Jesus establishes a new world order, one which will enshrine the ways and the purposes of God, then one could say of this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a homecoming, a family reconciliation, a place where what is lost gets found and where there's a big party whenever that happens. So it could be a parable of the kingdom. Clearly for the younger son, though, it's a parable of grace. Immediate, total forgiveness and reinstatement to sonship, elevation even, to the status of a royal son. But whenever grace breaks in upon this tough-minded, tight-fisted, thin-lipped world, as it does in Jesus, it creates a crisis of response. And that's why we have the parables of judgment. They show us people who are too preoccupied or unprepared or self-focused or resisting to embrace what God is doing. For the Pharisees and the scribes to whom this parable is directed, and for the elder brother in whom their attitudes are pictured, it is a parable of judgment, or maybe of suspended judgment, for we don't know if the father with his reasons that he gives is able to prevail upon the elder brother to join in the celebration. Maybe he does. Here's the teaching I think Jesus wants to convey to the Pharisees and the scribes, to Presbyterians, to any elder brother types who raised your hands out there a minute ago. This younger brother is kin to you. This younger brother is kin to you. Look at the final exchange between the father and the elder brother. When the elder brother comes out with his bitter complaint, he refers to the prodigal as this son of yours. Verse 30, all these years I've been working like a slave for you, yet you have never given me anything. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, came back, you killed the fatted calf for him. But in his reply, the father refers to that son as that brother of yours. Verse 32, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life, was lost, and is found. Isn't that neat to see what's happening? What the older brother says is a little like what my dad used to say when my mother, to my mother when I did something wrong. 
That daughter of yours has been sneaking stray cats into the house again. In the sneaking of stray cats, my father didn't recognize anything of himself. It was a vice which, in his view, I inherited solely from my mother. But when I got good grades or did something laudable, it was remarkable how his view would change. I would become, in those moments, kin to him. The elder brother is saying to his dad, there's not one bit of kinship between myself and that other son of yours that I'm willing to recognize. But the father gently contradicts him. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. This sinner is kin to you, whether you are willing to recognize it or not. And you know, when I listen to the elder brother, I have to admit that there might be more that he holds in common with the prodigal than he wants to realize. He paints the father a very vivid picture of what the younger son has done with his money. This son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes. Prostitutes? It just said dissolute living up above. It's a picture that we find no place else in the story. So maybe the elder brother can imagine this with such specificity because it would please him to indulge in those self-same vices. But why doesn't he? What is actually at the root of the difference between a notorious sinner and a respectable sinner? Maybe it's not so much a difference in moral quality as captivity to another kind of sin. Maybe the elder brother is too cheap to pay for prostitutes. Maybe he's too proud, too concerned about what others will think. Maybe his heart is pure, but maybe it's just the surface of his life that he's managed to keep unspotted, while his heart is just the same as his brother's, or worse, true kin in the family of Adam's fallen race. Jesus' wish for the Pharisees, I'm sure, is to know the worst part of themselves forgiven and accepted, for them to join in around the table where he is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. But their own insistence that those sinners are nothing like us is what's keeping them from doing that. So the judgment with which this parable confronts us is that we need to be careful that we do not miss our chance to share a meal with Jesus. In the older brother's case, his chance to enjoy a good party because we are so offended at who else is there. It's easy sometimes to despise the church as a place where the standards really aren't that high, a place where we'd rather not be found because of all the sinners they have there. In eternal terms, we need to be careful that we do not miss our chance of heaven because we are so offended at who else Jesus may be letting in. The minute we start to say there is no kinship between me and the sinner, you can be sure that the Father will gently correct us and say, this sinner is a brother of yours. He was dead and has come to life. When are you going to lay hold of the same miracle, the same grace? Jerry Bridges has made a career out of writing for Presbyterians. Respectable Sins is one of his books. 
where in contrast to the notorious sins of the tax collectors and the prostitutes of Jesus' day, in contrast to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that my fellow Regent students had left behind in their lives before Christ, he names sins guaranteed to be tolerated without comment in the kind of churches preferred by elder brothers. They are sins like ungodliness and unthankfulness, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, pride, selfishness, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, sins of the tongue, envy, jealousy, and lack of self-control. The fact that some sins are respectable means that you don't need to be in the far country to be lost. You can spend a lifetime in the church and be just as lost as the younger brother. You can be living right next to God and still cause him pain. Do you not think that in the long run this elder son's bitterness will have cost the father as much heartache as the younger one's waywardness? But grace and judgment really are two sides of the same coin. For when elder brothers come to see that there is kinship between themselves and the prodigal, it is possible that they will know why there must be a party. The prodigal's heart is nothing but glad, having met with a paternal love deeper, broader, higher than any he has deserved or could possibly imagine. Whether our sins are notorious or whether they are respectable, they are still the sins for which Jesus died. By the power of his cross, may we know them immediately and totally forgiven. May we know ourselves drawn into the broad family of all the sinners whom Christ has redeemed by his love. May we know ourselves at home in the Father's embrace. Thanks be to God. <laughs>